The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. On member supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Today, we're going to be covering the fifth and sixth articles in the Catechism of the Catholic Religion. The links to a free PDF are available in our show notes. With that brief intro, Your Excellency, let's get right into it. The fifth article has to do with our Lord's descent into hell. Like question one, what means he descended into hell? It means that he, pl- he went to the place uh, uh, in which the souls of the just of the Old Testament were detained for the reason that they could not enter heaven until he died on the cross. And that is uh, known as hell in the broad sense. Hell is in the broad sense, is anywhere after death you do not see God. You do not have the beatific vision. So it consists of this, what I just described. It consists of the limbo of children who die without baptism. Uh, And it also consists of the uh, hell of the damned, the hell of torment. So that's why you know, the word hell can be taken in a broad sense or a very strict sense, and the very strict sense is the hell of the damned. Uh, and obviously he did not descend into the hell of the damned. Here we are talking about the human soul of Christ. Now you say, how, uh, how does he descend into hell? Well, souls can be in places. Uh, maybe people don't realize that. They're spirits, but they can be in places in as much as they are acting upon a certain place. So an angel can be here or there, even with regard to material things. Uh, where this hell was or uh, is difficult to say, although St. Paul says that the hell of the damned is in the center of the earth, which would make an awful lot of sense. It is pretty uh, hot in so, there. <laughs> yes. Uh, it would make a lot of sense that the that hell be in the earth because these are the hell of the damned be in the earth because uh, they love the earth they love the th- things of the earth mm. whereas heaven is outside of our universe it's completely removed from the created universe but it, it, it makes sense that the hell of the damned would be inside the earth in the bowels of the earth and that's in St. Paul uh, so uh, so I'm going to guess maybe that 
the place was uh, somewhere inside the earth because uh, um, you know that that would make more sense. But we don't so know. As, a lot of things we you, just don't know. As you say, our Lord did not go to to this the, the hell of the damned. He went. He went to broadly speaking. You're, you're saying the hell, this limbo of the just. And and you answered question yes. to yes. why were they there? Because they they were waiting for our Lord. Um, question three is why did he descend into limbo? Uh, in order to announce to them the redemption that had taken place and uh, also to show his power and majesty even to those who were deceased uh, and uh, that, that he is the savior of the whole world. Uh, and uh, they, you see, they, but they cannot ascend until he ascends. So this was merely a, an announcement of comfort to the souls of the just, the soul of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and the prophets, uh, but they cannot ascend until he ascends, and they will ascend with him on Ascension Thursday. So if we're talking about the limbo of the innocent and the limbo of the just, obviously this is just before the limbo of the just shuts up shop, we could say. And yes. I was always taught that the limbo of, of the innocent is, is a place of natural happiness. So we assume, you know, the, the greatest happiness you could attain on, on earth, this is the state of that, I guess I've always thought of the the limbo of the just as all of these, you know, the wise patriarchs or all the holy women that had come beforehand that they're just sort of waiting around um, because they know that there's something else coming. Whereas in the limbo of the innocent, there is no anything else coming. Yes, that is true. That there was a hope of redemption, and uh, that's quite different from. There, there is no hope for someone who is not baptized. Uh, but these had the the preliminary baptism, you might say, of circumcision and and the redemption that was uh, promised to them, and they believed in the redemption, and that's how people were justified by believing in the redemption in the Old Testament, believing in the future Christ. Uh, so he is appearing to them uh, in this case and consoling them. Uh, now, this is, as we know, part of the creed, uh, and just to, to uh, just as a, an aside, uh, Luther said that this meant that he was buried in the ground. The descent into hell means that he was buried in the ground. J.P. too said exactly the same thing, that he was buried in the ground. That's what, the, that's what this means, which is heresy because you're denying the... Uh, common teaching of the Catholic Church concerning the creed. The Catholic Church has, has taught what I just said uh, in all of her catechisms, all of her preaching. Uh, it is the what we call universal ordinary magisterium. And therefore to deny that is heresy. So there's just one more count of heresy, both with Martin Luther and with John Paul II. Uh when we're talking about these these places that are they're beyond our comprehension, limbo, purgatory, do do the inhabitants of these places have any sense of of time or or being or are they just sort of restricted within this space? Obviously, we don't know because we haven't been there. But what does the church teach us that that we can know? 
Well, they don't have a sense of time the way we do. They, they, we have a sense of time because of rising and setting of the sun, essentially. And we, we gauge everything against the position of the sun in the sky. <laughs> and you know, everything, our watches are analogs or, or digital, and that's based on the position of the sun in the sky. Uh, and uh, so they have no sense of that because there's just, you know, there's no reference point for them, but there is time in the sense of duration and and hope of an end. So people in purgatory, for example, people in this limbo of, of the just, have a sense uh, that all of this is going to come to a good end. So in that sense, they have time. Time always must be, a, uh, a as Aristotle defines it, a measurement of movement. It is a measurement of movement. So in order to have movement, a sense of movement, you have to have something fixed from which you are going or toward which you are going. Either you're coming away from it or you're going toward it. But there has to be a fixed point. Otherwise, you can have no sense of movement. And if you have no sense of movement, you have no sense of time. That's why the, the souls in hell, the hell of the damned, have no sense of time at all because there's no movement for them. They are uh, one of the worst aspects of the hell of the damned is that it's everlasting, that nothing is ever going to change, and there's no hope. See, that, that's uh, If you lose hope in, in the alleviation of your problems, you become very depressed. You know, that's why people kill themselves uh, and... And because they, they realize there's no way out of this problem, and you know they have no spiritual lives, and they they just see life as misery, and then they kill themselves. It's because they lose hope, and one of the principal aspects of the hell of the damned will be the loss of hope that we are going to be like this forever, forever and ever and ever, and that nothing ever changes. It, it's all the same. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's very grim. Question number four: What means the third day he rose again from the dead? Uh, this means that the soul and body of Christ were reunited, and by His own power—that is, by His divine power—he uh, uh, rose again from the grave. So the reunion of body and soul is by divine power. That's why you occasionally see St. Paul say and uh, that God raised him from the dead. God is three persons. So and anything they do outside of themselves is proper to all three persons. And so that means Christ, as second person of the Blessed Trinity, restored to himself his uh, his living humanity that is by his divine power he brought together body and soul again uh and again this is something that is denied by ratzinger and the others uh they say that uh, uh they make no mention of this reunion of body and soul they just say that the apostles had a, a resurrection experience <clears throat> and everything's an experience hmm. and <laughs> Uh, the uh, you know, it's it's too it, 
effectively destroy the, the resurrection of Christ. If you say that the apostles had a resurrection experience, well, you know, I could have an experience of UFOs, too. Hmm. So, or, or an encounter, something like that. Yeah, yes. Uh, that the, it's the modernist way of wrecking the whole Catholic religion. Because, as St. Paul says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we're all, what we believe is point? in vain. Right, what's the yes. point? You know, if, if he was unable to restore himself to life, well, then he was unable to do anything. It is true that he was an imposter if he could not restore himself to life. Question five. How did Christ rise again? Uh, he came forth from the grave, uh, and uh, which was sealed with a heavy stone and guarded by soldiers. And what is important to know is that he came through the rock. He did not roll it back. It's the angels that rolled it back later. Right? So he just emerged from the rock. Uh, in the same way that he emerged from his mother's womb without disturbing it. Uh, he came through his mother's womb. And so he's, he came through the rock. This is, in, in a way, his second birth. And it's important to understand as well that his ability to go through material walls, as he did in the case of appearances to the apostles, arises not from his glorified body, but arises from his divinity, his power over nature as God. So uh, that, that's an important point. So what you're saying, Your Excellency, is we, our glorified bodies would not be able to, let's say, pass through the the rock in the same way that this is uh, uh, pertaining to our Lord's divinity, not to the, na the the state of his body at the time. That's correct. Okay. Question six. Did Christ retain in his glorified body any mark of his sufferings? Uh, yes, he did. He, he retained all of the five wounds, and, and we know this from what he said to St. Thomas, to put your finger in here, and etc., in his hands and in his side. And this is how we know that he was nailed to the cross. Uh, every time Easter comes around, Easter and Christmas come around, there's always some blasphemous and heretical article in, in the media. Do you ever notice that? And and you know, what what's wrong with Christ? What what myth we we believe about Christ, or you know, did he really exist, or or you know, was was Christ really a biker or something absurd like that, you know? Uh, and this year it was whether he was really nailed to the cross or not. Mm -hmm. Here, sacred scripture clearly says he was nailed. It was not uncommon for Romans to use nails. They used other things, but it was not uncommon for them to use nails. And we know that they did because of sacred scripture. So when you attack something like that, really you're attacking all of sacred scripture. If you say sacred scripture is wrong about the use of nails, then then all of it is subject to doubt. Because it's either all or nothing at all. Either it is all inspired and has the guarantee of the Holy Ghost, or it's just writings of people putting down their memoirs, and, and which could be subject to, to error. So those are not so subtle ways of destroying people's faith. I mean, a weak person would could easily succumb to that uh, and do I, the logic which they don't do for you. You, you mentioned St. Thomas, um, Your Excellency. Obviously, everything our Lord does has this 
wonderful purpose behind it. Uh, and obviously, I think this, this falls on Thomas. You know, in our culture, we in English, we say doubting Thomas. I think it's the same in French as well. Um, but our Lord was speaking to a segment of the population who, who need that, correct? I mean, there are some people who are just wired to need some kind of proof, despite the fact that Thomas, St. Thomas was with all of the apostles for all those years. All the apostles said they saw him. Uh, here's what happened. He's like, no, I don't believe it. I don't. I need to see it myself. That our Lord is, is in a way, covering all of the bases, even for people like St. Thomas who need to see it themselves. He is not, he's willing to do that for us. Yes, because there are the strong and there are the weak. And he wants to save both. And already our Lord rebuked the apostles for not believing the women. <laughs> see, see, uh, it, it, it was the testimony of the women uh, that was brought to the apostles. Then they they verified it themselves. They ran to the St. Peter and St. John ran to the tomb. Uh, but nobody believed it when the women came and said this this is true. So they were rebuked for that. And but St. Thomas was particularly rebuked because the apostles themselves told St. Thomas. And he would not believe. So this was a real case of a certain amount of stubbornness on his part. And so that's why our Lord uh, gave him the rebuke that he did. But uh, in almost all cases, except with the Pharisees, our Lord's rebukes were very mild. Uh, they were they were nice, you know. And but the the lesson was learned. He had a tremendous authority when he spoke, and, and so therefore he was able to give just a hint of rebuke, and, and you, you felt like dirt. <laughs> uh, the, the only time that he lashed out, we might say, was to the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and, and their, their burdening of the people and for various other reasons. Uh, but very seldom did he give a... And he also once lashed out at St. Peter for suggesting that he should not go to Jerusalem and die on the cross. Get behind mm. me, Satan, thou savorest not the things of God. That was a very strong rebuke. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Especially coming from And it was for Lord. his own sake. It was for his own sake that, you know, if you want Christ without a cross, you're looking the wrong way. You know, if you were going to suggest to me that I not bear the cross... Uh, this is something very offensive to me. I would never think of doing that. Uh, you know, our Lord did not rise up in anger that was out of control. If he wanted to be angry, he, he would turn it on the way you would turn on uh, any kind of machine. And he would produce anger in himself for a purpose and a reason, and that was to tell St. Peter something very, very important. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, we know that he drove the, the uh, money changers out of the temple with anger. But that was a, a perfectly reasonable anger and a, an anger that was under control. Question seven. Why has he still retained these marks? He retained the marks, uh, first of all, as a testimony of his victory over hell. <clears throat> he always wants to be associated with his holy cross the holy cross is the purpose of his coming so uh, he, he we can never separate christ from the cross it's impossible i mean he might be seen in pictures without his cross but 
the, the uh, it is impossible to separate him from his cross in the theological sense. Uh, he also wanted to show that this was the same body that was placed on the cross, that there was not some substitute or he was not a ghost or something like that. Uh, and he uh, uh, wants to show these uh, wounds on the day of judgment uh, because he will appear with the sign of the cross in the skies, it says. He will show these as a consolation uh, for the just and, and a, a source of mercy for the just and uh, a condemnation of the wicked, at the wicked having colluded over these centuries with the crucifixion of Christ will have to pay a great price for it. That the time of mercy will be over and the time of justice will come and they will have to pay a great price for having participated in and, and uh, in the, the uh, sin of the Jews and of the Gentiles in crucifying our blessed Lord. Question 8. Whence do we know that Christ rose from the dead? Uh, from the testimony of the apostles and the disciples uh, who uh, saw him and spoke with him, ate with him, touched him, conversed with him. Uh, there, there was eyewitness testimony um, concerning this. Uh, and they... Uh, um, uh, everywhere proclaimed his resurrection, uh, even before the chief council of the Jews, who had condemned him to death. Uh, and so they they were, uh, and they themselves eventually would accept death for it. Uh, St. Paul was left to scorn when he talked about the resurrection of the dead, when he was in Athens. But uh, they, um, uh, they were always very explicit about the fact that our blessed Lord rose from the dead. Uh, so uh, that's the that's the testimony for everything we believe is the apostles, uh, what they learned and what what they have handed down to us. This is maybe the it's the last question in the fifth article, but it's maybe the longest answer. Uh, question nine: What effect ought the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ uh, produce in us? Uh, well, first of all, uh, as the book says, it should strengthen our belief in his divinity. Uh, if you rise from the dead, you there is no other argument to make. Uh, I gave a sermon on that years ago uh, on French canon, the, the canon that the French used in, before, you know, in the 18th century. But always they had on it, Ultima Ratio Regum. It's Latin for the last argument of kings. <laughs> you blast somebody with a cannon. Mm. And we might say the same of the resurrection, that this is the last argument of Christ. That if I rise from the dead, I put a guarantee on every single thing that I have said, and I put a guarantee on my own divinity. Because who could rise from the dead on his own power except God. So it's it's central to our faith, and that's why any attack upon the resurrection of Christ is something which attacks the whole faith. And second, to incite us to rise from the death of sin to a new and holy life. 
So that's what St. Paul says. If you, if you have arisen with Christ, then mind the things that are above and don't mind the things of earth. Uh, so uh, we should, it, it is the source of Christian hope that we will ourselves rise from the dead, which is a, a very, very strong promise that those who have rotted in the earth for centuries or who have drowned in the sea or have burned up in fire will be, by the power of God, restored to their bodies. Uh, that, you know, to contemplate that is, is, a, is a very, very remarkable thing. Uh, it, it, when you think about the power of God in doing that, of course, it, it's not, it doesn't require as much power, we might say, and that's speaking humanly, as to create to restore creation is not a, not a, as great an act for him as to create itself, uh, and uh, uh, so you know if we believe in God the Creator, we believe in God the Restorer. But it is a uh, something to uh, to think about on the last day. You know the um, the restoration of life to to the. the to the to everyone that has ever lived, either for a resurrection of glory for the just or a resurrection of condemnation for those who are guilty of mortal sin when they die. And I, I suppose it's that that awe-inspiring idea that this isn't something our our Lord. It's not restricted to our Lord. It's not singular. He's promising that to us as well, and uh, and that obviously is very inspiring. Yes. Yes. So that's the end of the fifth article. The sixth article has to do with heaven. Question one, what is meant by he ascended into heaven? That is, he went soul and body into heaven. Uh, now, soul and body, that refers to his human nature because as God, he's always in heaven. See, the incarnation uh, is... God's drawing a human nature to himself. Uh, now, we do say, you know, he descended and all, uh, and, and uh, came down from heaven. That, that's certainly legitimate and proper to say, but a human nature cannot drag God to himself, so to speak. It is God that draws the human nature to himself. So uh, we're talking about Christ according to his sacred human nature uh, ascends into heaven and, uh, and sits at the right hand of God the Father, again, according to his human nature, because as Son of God, second person of the Blessed Trinity, he is already there. So he never left heaven in that sense. He never uh, went away from his Father as God. You know, he, he, but he is now ascending according to, because you know, with Christ, he's he's both God and man. So you can't say, well, it's just his his human nature is ascending. That would be Nestorian to say that, but it's according to his human nature uh, and his glorified human nature after his resurrection uh, that uh, there is this ascent. Question two: Did Christ ascend alone into heaven? No, he took with him into heaven the souls of the just, which we talked about earlier, uh, that he liberated from limbo. But, as I said, they could not go until he went. 
So uh, he ascends with all of the just of the Old Testament. And that's quite a few when you think about it, because that's 4,000 years, at the very least, 4,000 years uh, of people. Now, you know, we think back to the Romans, that's only 2,000 years ago. That that seems just like ages and ages and ages. I think of all of those people that lived from the time of the Romans to, to now. Uh, and that's only half of... Uh, of uh, of those years now the population of the earth probably wasn't so big as now but the nevertheless that it represents a considerable amount of people but on the other hand it represents only those who had a desire in the redemption now it's possible that some pagans had an implicit desire in it probably the magi did and that's probably why, uh, the reason why they went to see Christ, they could have learned of the Jewish scriptures. Uh, it is possible that they could have achieved a justification through their hope of a future redemption uh, by Christ, by the anointed of God. Uh, but in any case, the only way that you could hope for heaven in the Old Testament was by believing in the future Messiah, either explicitly or implicitly. So uh, that's the, those are, and then you had to lead a good life. You had to obey the commandments uh, of God as you knew them. In any case, and and you had to to lead a life in accordance with the law of God as you knew it. Uh, and um, so it, that was a difficult thing in the Old Testament. You know, we, we talk about the depravity of the modern age. Uh, the depravity in the Old Testament was was far worse in a certain sense, objectively far worse than what we're seeing today. Ours is far worse in this sense, that it is post-Christian. Uh, if, uh, uh, how should I, you know, it, it, if people are eating dirt because they don't know any better, that's bad. Mm. But if they have been brought to a table of, of delights, and purposely abandon the table and go back to eating dirt. That's far worse. In other well, words, I... our age is one of post-Christianity. That is, the gospel has been preached to the whole world, and the world has rejected it, and, Lazar, to use our Lord's image, has gone back to its vomit, just like the dog. Mm. That's far worse than the people in the Old Testament that never had the gospel. But they were quite depraved. People in the before the coming of Christ were very depraved in their morals and and incredibly crazy with regard to what they believed in religion. I mean, just <laughs> most insane things that they came up with with regard to religion. So you know, the world was was a it had all the effects of original sin. It was a condemned place, it was something like a prison. You know, where everybody in it has serious problems. And a society is created uh, of people who are not virtuous. Uh, and it, it had that, that kind of prison atmosphere of a, of a race that was uh, condemned and, and a race that could not fix itself. Uh, and that's why there was the necessity of the Savior. And that's why even pagans long for a redemption of the human race. 
a, a way to fix it. it, it it's all wrong. It, it, it descends into evil actions, evil thoughts, evil desires, everything. It, it just has this, this penchant for evil. That, that was the experience of the Old Testament. Yeah, so, yes, uh, there's, a, there's an old Latin proverb, the, the corruption of the best is the worst. So yes. the, this idea that not only are you going back to eating dirt, but you eat the dirt even better, shall you say, than, than the, uh, the, the worst. So you, you revel mm-hmm. in your, your sin in an even worse format than those original dirt eaters. Uh, yes. Even more unfortunate. So, that gives it, so I don't think we're quite as depraved, of, objectively speaking, as the people in the Old Testament. But we're worse, we're more guilty for the depravity that we have now. I also think that we will achieve objectively the depravity of the Old Testament and that we will exceed it. That's my opinion. So if you think things are bad now... <laughs> so you, you're saying San Francisco is a, is a Sodom in training, but it's not quite there yet. <laughs> well, I don't think it... it the, the, the fact that there are, are certain weirdos, let's say, or certain people who are off the track uh, from what they should be is bad. What is far, far, far worse to the tenth power, let's say, is the fact that those who should know better approve of it. Hmm. That is, that's the really scary thing. You, you will always have people who, for one reason or another, will not obey the law of God, will do things that are contrary to nature or, you know, really bizarre things. They will always be with you. They were always around. The scary thing is that society approves of it. Uh, so now we're seeing the the, the bathroom controversy, <laughs> mm. and that opens not to make a pun, but it opens a lot of doors. I mean, as more and more transgender operations take place, there's going to be more and more demand for acceptance of transgenders. And that will again become a civil rights issue. And, you know, they will have to have access uh, to whatever bathroom they please. So you might have people who are physically men going into ladies' rooms and vice versa. Uh, but the fact that that could even get to the point of being uh, an issue is very scary because it means the general population is going along with it. Hmm. The, uh, the you know the people in North Carolina protesting the law uh, said you know had a sign saying no hate in our state, as if the law of North Carolina is a hate law, as if it it represents hate to require somebody to use the bathroom that they in the sex they were born in. Uh, uh, that this is this is qualified as hate. And you can just see how that whirlwind of hate uh, or the accusation of hate is going to be placed upon us who retain any any notion of natural law and tradition that that will be placed upon us little by little and more by more and more and more as time goes on mm. because the general population is accepting the the departure from natural law <clears throat> that's very very serious and scary well, to, to bookend this discussion of bodies and, and question two, I do want to allude to the fact that 
our Lord's at that time, our Lord's body was the only glorified body. And now then he later, he was joined by our lady, but it's important, I suppose, for our listeners to, to know that when we're talking about our Lord ascending with all the, the just, he's just taking their souls he and our lady yeah. are, are singular at the moment in heaven, in yes. their, in their body. Yes. Yes. That the, he wanted to anticipate the general resurrection from the dead uh, with our Blessed Lady for various reasons. I mean, that would be a whole other show. But he uh, wanted to anticipate it. Sort of a way of showing humanity a, a greater hope that it, here is what I have prepared for you. Now, of course, Our Lady exceeds you, all of the rest of the humanity in, in sanctity and dignity. But nevertheless, it is she has the same grace in her soul as we do. Uh, it, it is the, the same act of glorification, perhaps not to the same extent, uh, obviously not to the same extent, that we will receive as she received. Uh, and that, that's the, the purpose of that. Uh, so, uh, Question three. For what purpose did Christ ascend into heaven? Well, to uh, take possession of uh of his glory this uh, this is his glory again according to his sacred humanity uh, his mission from his father was to give up his life for sinners and in accepting this mission with obedience he overcame the disobedience of adam uh, so he now has possession of the whole human race not only as god but also as man inasmuch as he has bought them back uh, from the devil uh, and is, is now a conqueror uh, and, over the devil. And the, the principal effect of original sin, which is from the devil, is death and hell. So the uh, death of the body and then hell for the soul and eventually the body, uh, because without the grace of God, it, it is impossible that we persevere for a long time without original, without mortal sin. That's the teaching of the church. That you can persevere for a time without mortal sin, but you will eventually fall if you are deprived of the actual grace of God. And all of the grace of God for the human race, even in the Old Testament, comes from Christ. It comes from his, his redemptive act on the cross. So anything that was granted in the Old Testament, even to the patriarchs or to the prophets, etc., uh, comes from Christ. There is no grace outside of Christ. Uh, that's why this idea that the, the Jews have some other path to God besides Christ is heretical, because any path to God that the Jews had in the Old Testament was through the coming Christ. And that's why they had to believe in the coming Christ in order to be saved. Because the source of all grace, which is the source of all salvation, comes from the redemptive act of Christ. Um, so, uh, so that's one reason. The second was to be our mediator and advocate with his Father. And this is in St. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. Again, according to his human nature. So, and that's one of the reasons why he retains his wounds is to show them to his father as the as a motive of mercy to the human race so uh so he is our mediator in heaven 
and third to send the Holy Ghost to his disciples because it was uh, his work was finished now it was the time for the work of the Holy Ghost and that would be a whole other question uh, I don't want to go into that now but now is the time for the Holy Ghost to take over so to speak and to the, the spirit of sanctification uh, so he is going to send him and the fourth is to open heaven and to prepare a place for us also. So he he is going to formally uh, make uh, possible for us uh, heaven, the, the possession of heaven. And he is going to make a place for those who will, uh, in fact, save their souls. Uh, so uh, uh, he only knows who will and who will not. But that—that that is the purpose of that. Question four: What means "sitteth at the right hand of God"? It means that Christ, as man, also is exalted above all created things and participates in the power and the glory of the divine Majesty. So again, this is according to his human nature, uh, because according to his divine nature, he is always. He is co-equal with the Father in power and in glory. Right? But here he is showing that he did not shed his human nature in going to heaven. It wasn't as if, well, I'm finished with that now. Uh, he, the, the sacred human nature of Christ uh, is, uh, is united to the second person of the Blessed Trinity, and even as man reigns over that so christ as not only as god but as man as well reigns over the entire universe that's an important point uh saint Pi um, pius XI points that out in his uh, treatise on christ the king his uh, encyclical on christ the king and and this isn't a sort of discrimination against left-handed people your excellency this is just uh this is just a symbology that we've seen throughout both the old and the new testament uh, we have the uh the 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 mother of james and john asking who's going to get to sit at the right hand can you can you talk a little bit about the significance of of the right hand uh, or sitting at the right hand why is that so important it's a symbol of of dignity uh and the right has always been the the correct place to be. <laughs> uh, the the just will be put on the right, and the on the left will be the condemned. Uh, it has always been the the correct place, and and even in politics, it's the correct place to be. Uh, there's something right about it. Uh, so uh, I I don't know the origin uh, of it. Uh, it could be that most people are right-handed. I don't know. Uh, it's just that that has always been um, considered a, a, a place of dignity, uh, especially among the Jews. You know, so it's um, it, it's in the Psalm 109, "Sit at my right hand." Uh, so it goes back to David. This is a thousand years practically before Christ. So the the expression goes goes way back. The Jews always spoke in images. They they really did not have many uh, abstract nouns in their in their vocabulary. They they had to express things by images and concrete words. So uh, this is one of the ways in which it's done. So uh, 
I, I do remember an anecdote from my father. He, growing up, going to Catholic school in, in the in the 50s, uh, there was a nun, I think, who was trying to encourage him to write a little bit more. My father's a, a lefty. And uh, I wonder, was this a practice that you were familiar with, Your Excellency? Uh, I know that years ago they, they tried to correct the left-handed people by forcing them to write with their right hand, and they actually put a a sock over the uh over their left hand to make them to force them to to write with their right hand uh but that was eventually dropped i mean i i remember a lot of left-handed children in my school in the 1950s which is a long long time ago um writing with their left hands so but i know many years ago they would they would actually try to force them to write with their right hand question 5 is Christ then not present in all places? As God, he is everywhere. Uh, but as God-man, that is, uh, connected as he is, to or, uh, united as he is, is a better word, to his sacred human nature, he is only in heaven and in the Holy Eucharist. <clears throat> so he is body, blood, soul, and divinity, in the Holy Eucharist, and so he is located where the sacred host is located. Well, that is the end of the sixth article, and it's also the end of your run on This is Catholicism, uh, Your Excellency. Um, for our listeners, uh, we had meant to relieve His Excellency of this show uh, earlier, but uh, our, our replacement uh, was not uh, ready at the time to take it. He will be uh, starting with the next episode of This is Catholicism, but I want to thank His Excellency both for suggesting this text, I think it's been an excellent text, and also for giving his time very generously to, to work on something that um, I would say is below his pay grade. Uh, these are uh, There are other things that um, he's got to worry about other than, than catechism, but I suppose it's also a good lesson mm. to all of us that you can always go back to these fundamentals uh, as Catholics. We need to know them cold. Teaching the Catechism is one of the primary duties of a priest, and it, you should not ever think that teaching the Catechism is below anyone's pay grade. Uh, <laughs> it's just that uh, others are capable of doing it as well as or better than I am, and whereas I might be more or better suited uh, for things that concern church history or sacred theology uh, than the catechism. But I, I, you know, that, that's so much a part of a priest's work. Uh, it's right after saying mass <laughs> is to teach the catechism. So, uh, I, you know, you should, it's not something in any way below me. It's just, is a question of a time really, you know, where I am best used. That's all. Well, and we thank you for that. And, uh, we won't see you next time on this series, but we'll see you on other, uh, episodes of, of uh, member-supported Restoration Radio. But thanks for your time, Your Excellency. Thank you very much. If you have any questions for His Excellency, please feel free to write to questions at truerestoration.org. That's questions with an S. We want to remind you that This is Catholicism is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, 
please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the restoration, I'm Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.